Today on Semi-Intellectual Musings, Matt takes us to the rough-and-tumble world of Kabaddi. Phil muscles through Marx's metabolic metabolism, and it wasn't as frightening as I imagined. Matt wants us to be schooled in history, and I suggest we get lost on an island, the board game world. Woman, woman, tell me your name, let me have my life reclaimed. How's the garden looking? It uh, looks like it's sprouting up a little it, bit. It's really starting to sprout. Uh, we got some good spring weather. Uh, lots of rain. You know what they say about uh, April showers? Uh, uh, what? They bring May flowers? Yeah. Oh, there you uh, go. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. And last year, um, I spent a couple weeks uh, digging out um, a patch in the back area that the developers had cut down all the trees. And it was intended to put a garage so it was all like really hard, compacted dirt. Uh, so I, I put in a meadow. Um, so it's like, um, I don't know, it's about 750 square feet, I guess. Why, uh, why a meadow? What's like, the idea there? Well, I didn't feel like uh, mowing grass. Yeah, that's, and, that's fair. And, uh, also, it's like a rock plane out there. Like you just destroy any lawnmower that you could possibly have. Yeah, it's very rocky. It's on like a little bit of an incline. So... I was like, you know what? Fuck it. I'm putting in wildflowers. So I got a good wildflower mix from, uh, from Vessies. Yeah. But, uh, they don't support this podcast. <laughs> Is uh, it, uh, are you like one of those, uh, political honeybee persons? I'd like to attract bees. Yeah. I- I'm kind of a political honeybee guy. Yeah. You know, I think in theory, it's a good idea to have bees around and doing their thing. But if I'm outside doing a barbecue, having a burger or some ribs or something, I don't really want them around. Yeah, um, I can see that. But what about like, do you get like black flies and shit like yeah, that? Yeah, we there? have, yeah, we have tons of black flies here. Like they're awful. Yeah, they're like, it. they just killed me last year. But, you know, I'll take, I'll take those couple few weeks where it's really buggy and stuff or whatever, just for everything else that comes with uh, living in the country in the summer. Are you going to start a bat farm? Yeah, we have a couple spots where we're going to put in some bat uh, homes. Really? I uh, I was just kind of shot in the dark. I no, even. condos for bats. Yeah, it's a thing. Huh. Um, but we're not really well positioned. We're, we're going to do it anyway, but uh, bats tend to like to be a certain distance from a major waterway or like a river. Don't or a, Don't you have a lake over there? Well, we do have lakes, but we're kind of either too close or too far from them. Uh, um, when we looked into it, when we last year, when we were doing some stuff outside, that, that makes sense, man. Like the uh, all the flies and stuff converge around the water, right? So that's yeah, the exactly. Best here. Yeah. yeah. Um, but we do have uh, owls, uh, quite a few owls that that made their homes in in our backyard. So that's kind of nice. And what we're hoping for with owls the, are scary, man. They always freak me out. They just come out of nowhere and they're huge. They're aggressive. Oh, are they're, they? Oh, fuck. Yeah. Like they they hunt shit down. Like they. Oh, so yeah. they'll, they'll like follow you and like check you out and shit. They've never attacked us, but there are <laughs> there are stories of owls taking swoops at. <laughs> Save it for the podcast if you had an owl attack story. <laughs> oh yeah, if, if an owl attacks me, I'm talking about it. Um, but no, what we really hope to do with the um, with the meadows uh, attract some um, like hummingbirds, um, butterflies. We got quite a few of those last year. So and you get deer out here as well, right? Tons of deer. Uh, part of the mix that I'm getting a crossbow this year. No. No, just for looking at. Silent. No. Silent. No, just for looking at. 
Just take the loin. We had lots of deer come in last year um, because part of the mix I put in is this very high in protein grass that deer tend to like. So they come in in late summer, early fall to graze, um, which is great. So last year we had maybe 10 or 12 uh, come in, Mm. uh, which was, you know, it's quite impressive to wake up in the morning and there's, you know, 10 deer in your backyard. It's cool. It's like it's your own little ecosystem, our own little park back there. eh? Well, I mean, it used to be a forest. And to uh, build the house that we are currently in, uh, they had to cut down some of those trees. So if I can build a bit of it back, uh, I'd be happy. No, oh, that's cool, man. That's cool. I don't know. It reminds me. I uh, I think back uh, some days on days like this. Like this would be a day where me and my boys would get together, grab a football, go out to Bear Creek Park, and uh, just chill, man. Sit out in the park and uh, do what we do. Where's Bear Creek Park? Oh, Bear Creek. Uh, sorry, that's. Uh, I just assume you're from my hometown sometimes, no, but I... uh, it's in Surrey, British Columbia. Surrey. And, yeah, it's like our. Um, I'd say it's like our central park. Like it's our our big giant park that uh, spans. I don't even know how many blocks, how many acres, but uh, it's huge. It's got like a famous swimming pool. Uh, it's got this like cheesy walkway uh, through this garden sort of area that people who get married in Surrey go get their pictures taken there. It's a uh, it's got everything you'd want in a park. And um, I don't know. One of my favorite things you'd never really be able to plan it, but every once in a while you would wander in there and they would be. Uh, to be playing this uh, game called kabaddi. You know what that is? It's like a sport. Kabaddi? Yeah, from India. You've talked to me about it. I don't know what it is. Oh, okay. Hold on to your pants. This is going to be awesome. Right. Um, this is something that we're passionate tell about us, in Surrey. Tell us about kabaddi. Okay, so where the the town that I'm from, Surrey, BC, um, has got, a, for like a, any foreign listeners that we have... Uh, uh, we call people from India or people born in Canada of Indian descent, we call them Indo-Canadians. But um, most of the people in Surrey are from India or of Indian heritage are Sikhs from uh, Punjab. Okay. Which it's, it's up in like the northwest corner of India, right? Up in the mountains, right? And people from there are like uh, kind of like hardy mountain people, right? Like, like I got a lot of friends from there. They're like pretty big guys. And uh, one of the most popular sports in India, probably the po- next to cricket, I'd imagine, mm. um, is kabaddi. And it's like you get a whole bunch of beefy guys, and it's basically like Red Rover, Tag, and Rugby all smushed together. Whoa. Yeah, it's amazing. Um, they'll, I'm sure I'll get Phil to throw some links up there, but there, if you type in Kabaddi into YouTube, um, there you'll find some amazing clips. Um, basically, there's like a professional league out of India, and there's also a world championship of Kabaddi. And uh, the world championships actually just happened in 2016 at the end of the year. And uh, India... I looked it up. Uh, one for the third straight year. Uh, they beat Iran uh, this year. Um, but actually, I, I was surprised to see. Not surprised, actually, considering that there's a, uh, a lot of people who play Kabaddi in Canada. But in 2011, Canada came second in uh, the World Championship. So go Canada. That's not too bad. It's awesome. I also looked this up. Um, the style of Kabaddi that they play in Punjab, um, the style that I'm most familiar with, is uh, it's called Amar. Um, A-M-A-R. Um, and I know, like, I know so many Amars um, from Surrey, so it's, it was kind of cool to see that. Um, and I feel like the 
Punjabi style is like the guys are like bigger, perhaps. Because anytime I went to Bear Creek Park, it was just like the guys you wouldn't want to mess with at a club, like shirtless and like basketball shorts, just like running at each oh, other. Boy. Yeah, and basically, as I said, the game is like a Red Rover style where you have two teams line up and there's like probably like a center line and you send one guy at a time over to the opposing side and the opposing side tries to tackle him, right? And if you can score him away and run back to your own side without them like grabbing you, I guess, uh, you score a point. So is this the game where you have to hold your breath and run around saying kabaddi, 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 kabaddi? <laughs> it is, yeah. That's a, that's a interesting like... Um, interesting dynamic in it like in the world championship um level i think i don't think they have to hold their breath but they have to constantly say kabaddi and um i guess like it's interesting it's almost like um like if you don't say kabaddi it's like uh like a double dribble or whatever like you kind of lose possession i think right so yeah. saying it is kind of like dribbling the ball yeah. on the court yeah so i think and that's where like the refs come in like they they oh. police shit like that, um, but it's um, it's a fascinating game. I looked up some of the history. Um, Do tell us. 1936, the Berlin Olympics. It was actually a demonstration sport. So Hitler's Olympics. It was actually the first time it was uh, demonstrated to like the international community. Wow. Um, it's uh, that's pretty much all I got. <laughs> Where what is it like? What's its origin? Where does it come from? Oh, it's like the word itself is Tamil. So that comes from the south of India, but um, it's played all over the country. It's like the most popular or the second most popular sport. So um, I think there's like regional variations to it. Um, it's mainly, it's kind of like a stickball kind of game where it's played in like small communities and villages. Like you'd play it in the street or out in the fields or whatever. And um, I think part of the history is like the reason why Punjab became um, so enthralled with Kabaddi um, was because little brief history side um they people from punjab um they the sikhs have only been around for like 300 plus years um as an organized religion um and within that time they've been persecuted by muslims and hindus in the in india right so because they're farmers and they don't have access to the military training, I think they use Kabaddi as a way of like combat training. And it's also kind of like, if you look at it, if you look at on YouTube, you'll see it's like, it's kind of like barehanded combat, right? So a lot of times when you see farming communities, they use styles like that. As yeah, I'm, I'm looking at a video right now. Um, I can see this definitely being related to military training. It, it looks like, uh, what happens if you're up shit Creek and you don't have a weapon? Like, I don't know, you're off in the latrine or something. And then like four guys just kind of storm you. Uh, I'll post some links. It, it's a, it looks like a really interesting game. I'm not, I'm not sure I'd really play it. Yeah. I, I, I think I, I think I'm going to skip my next yeah, uh, body championship. I think these guys are huge, massive. Like I, yeah, yeah. yeah. Get, frightening. So, welcome to the show. This is Semi-Intellectual Musings, uh, hosted by yours truly, Philip Primo. And Matt Sanderson. This is the podcast that explores social sciences, humanities, and arts. And uh, we try not to take ourselves too seriously. No, we don't. <laughs> like this intro. <laughs> well, so so I think every intro, we're going to try to find a new way to explain it, um, what, what exactly we're doing. Um, but... What what we're doing in uh, this podcast is we're providing a platform for academics and 
published works uh, to be publicized uh, a bit more broadly. We try to make uh, academic work accessible um, in a kind of lighthearted, uh, whimsical sort of way. Uh, like I, like Matt said, we don't take ourselves too seriously. Um, so one of the things that we do is uh, we do discussions. We talk about stuff that's published, uh, stuff that we've come across that's interesting. Some um, episodes may follow a particular theme. Uh, others won't. And will just be stuff that uh, we think that you'd like to hear about. We'll also do some interviews. We'll uh, be reaching out to academics. We'll be reaching out to policymakers, movers, groovers, shakers, people in the community who have stories to tell. Um, so we want to hear your story if you have one. You can contact us uh, at semiintellectual at gmail.com. You can also uh, tweet at us at the underscore SIM underscore pod. That's the SIMPod on Twitter. And you'll be able to uh, subscribe, follow RSS feed, uh, catch, podcatch, whatever it's called, uh, this show on the Podbean network uh, at the sim at dot the sin. The sim? Yeah. Yeah, it's the sim, the sim dot, dot podbean dot com. Dot com. Yeah. And the sim, all one word. Oh boy, that was a mouthful. Yeah, absolutely. Well, we'll get better at that as we go along. Well, I hope we yeah. will. Consult the show notes. <laughs> yeah although i guess you've already found us so just subscribe in your podcatcher try to yeah please subscribe leave us yeah. uh reviews uh let, let us know what you think one thing that we do promise is that everything that we talk about um is our honest opinion so if we like or if we dislike a piece of work uh our promise to you is that it's our honest opinion we're not gonna go you know bsing you yeah absolutely um and we do look forward to hearing from you via email um We've released a couple of episodes by this point, I imagine. Is that the order we that will we're have. going in? Yeah, we will have. So um, there's a couple of good topics in there. One was on mental health, another one on concussions, and those are both topics that we would like to hear from you. So, um, But be sure when you do write in, uh, note if you want us to read it on the podcast or not. The, <laughs> the format of the show is we do an intro. Uh, we're about uh, 13 minutes into it. It generally runs between uh, 10 and 14 minutes long. Uh, next, we'll review some articles or some works uh, that we find interesting. Mm-hmm. Uh, and generally, we finish off with either some recommendations or um, something else that, uh, you know, we might come up with. Could be a special interview. Could be some poetry. Maybe we'll do a little poetry session with Matt. <laughs> Slam poetry only. Yeah. yeah. Have anything else to add, Matt? <laughs> no, nothing at all. I'm looking forward to starting the show. All right. Well, let's start the show. <laughs> Hey, welcome back. I'm here with Phil. And uh, I don't know, ever since I've known Phil, he's always been, had a healthy enamorship, being enamored with uh, Marx. Um, he's always read Marx and applied him in different ways to his research. And if I'd ask him, like, oh, what are you reading? He'd be always invariably say Marx. I'm like, okay, how are you using Marx today, Phil? And he would explain some obscure little point from <laughs> Marx, and I would be confused because I know just a surface reading of Marx. So I th- figured uh, two birds with one stone, get Phil to talk about Marx, explain it to me, and explain it to everybody listening right now. So 
um, yeah, I think Phil's got an obscure point that he wants to raise, so I'm just going to pass it over to Phil. Well, I'm not sure how obscure it is. Um, <laughs> Shows but, how little I know. <laughs> no, but I think uh, okay. So one thing, whenever you mention marks, like it's a um, it's a really big four letter word uh, in any social science circles, uh, and inevitably you come across this traditionalist reading of Marx versus like a revisiting of Marx versus all that. And I don't today, I I don't want to get into to those things. And I don't even really want to explore what Marx uh, traditionally is, how Marx is traditionally read. So what you would find in like a a sociology 101 or a 201 level course pack. Yeah. Like, um, so I call them textbook reviews where we like, Marx was born, blah, 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 and you met Ingalls whenever, and then he sold his coat to the pawn shop. And, right. You know. Right. Like, the biography of Marx alone is, uh, like, extremely fascinating and worthwhile to read against his work. Um, but that's that's not what I want to do today. What I want to do today is pick up on uh, one uh, strand of thinking in Marx, and, and I'll call it a strand of thinking, but it's something that I, I think – um, carries through with the majority of his writings. Um, that's the idea of uh, metabolic processes, uh, metabolism, um, metabolic rift. Um, it's it's stuff that has been uh, talked about. It's traditionally picked up in political ecology. Um, so, like, it's a political ecology um, is obviously uh, well informed from a Marxian perspective. Sorry, what's uh, for those not not uh acquainted uh political ecology um do you want to explain it or should i take a stab at it or go for it okay let's try um i would say it's a radical reading of the social science of nature and the ecological world so um whether you're a feminist political ecologist or a marxist political ecologist you are problematizing the natural world and how i guess humans interact with it you know we are social sciences i guess I know there's some academics who would be like, where are the humans in this? Yeah, that, um, yeah, that's pretty good. I think it's a study of the relationships, uh, between economic, social, political, uh, agents and the environment. Uh, I think they look at, uh, issues of change, particularly around that. I think, uh, one of the underlying ideologies is that there is less of a separation between, uh, nature and humankind, mm. uh, than, um, you know, what Marx would call vulgar economists would have us believe. Uh, I think um, political ecology is different um, from just ecological studies or from political studies. Um, I think it starts by politicizing the environment, by asking questions about the relationship of humans to the environment, um, and not taking for granted that the environment is some entity that exists uh, for us to either conquer or to leave alone or to cherish or to whatever. So did Marx like directly talk about the environment? Was that a concern or is this um, um, later academics applying Marx to, in just for lack of a better term, to political ecology? Actually? That, well, this is, this is the point. So Marx talks a lot about the environment. Um, oh, really? I, I had no idea. Yeah. Uh, Marx brings up, um, the environment in several different ways. Uh, but I think... Give me a couple, if you don't mind. Is there a couple that you can just off the... Because most of this is actually, for the listener there, most of this is off the top of our heads, so bear with us. So some, some of these questions might surprise Phil. 
Well, I think I think one way that I can uh, get into those is reading some quotes that I've kind of uh, extracted. Um, okay, cool. And my source uh, for this is uh, the complete works of Marx and Engels. Uh, so what I can do is uh, I can read some quotes. I can give you the volume and the page number where it can be found. Um, I, it, we're not going to be able to post the completed works. It's a huge, massive yeah, of archive yeah. of all the works. But, you know, um, if you... Um, if any of our listeners wish to to go and read these things, um, there are some uh, free sources, open open source sources of Marx and Engels' works. Uh, but to get to your question about how Marx talks about the environment, here's here's um, here's a quote. Uh, this is from Volume Thirty, Page Sixty Two. A machine that does not serve in the labor process is useless, dead wood and iron. Apart from this. It falls victim to consumption by elemental forces, to the universal metabolism of nature. Iron rusts, wood rots. Yarn that is not woven or knitted, etc., is only wasted cotton. Cotton unfitted for the other useful applications it possessed, in its state as cotton, as raw material. So my reading of that is that Marx certainly has his eyes on uh, natural elements, natural forces, uh, he has certainly his eyes on the passage of time, which uh, from a traditional reading of Marx, you, one would say is important to his theory of um, labor surplus value. But what I'm interested in is that part where he says to the universal metabolism of nature. And when he he speaks of the universal metabolism, he's really picking some strands up from his doctoral thesis um, that kind of looked at uh, – various um, natural forces in Aristotelian thought. So like the ebb, the certain, you know, powers that are there that we don't see. Um, so there he's really picking up on Aristotle. I think he, he makes the move to a more Kantian analysis of nature through Aristotle. And this is where metabolism becomes really important for Marx. Um, so, okay, there's a little bit to chew on there. Um, so universal metabolism, uh, an idea that came to my mind is the one reading of Marx that's like a systems approach, like seeing Marx, as he says right there at the beginning of that quote, uh, make uh, machine, right? Yeah. Like seeing the world as a machine and those who participate within economies, let's say, sure. as parts of the machine, right? And this is a dominant, obviously he's writing at the height of the Industrial Revolution. Um, so um, metaphors around um, mechanization and systems, it was quite prevalent at the time. Um, but I did think it was kind of interesting how you made the further connection with Aristotle and Kant, did you say? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And um, they are very much systems um, approaches, right? With these large universal sort of forces going on, right? Some people in the sciences will say um, medicine comes from like these ethers, right? You know, and it's like this sort of uh, old medieval way of thinking, right. which is directly linked to Aristotle. So um, do you find that people stop right there when they critique Marx and say like, well, Marx is not really relevant in our current times because he takes this sort of systems approach or do you you know do you see that as i guess an invalid critique of marx no i think um there is a critique uh of marx to be found and i'm i'm 
you know, I, I, I am critical of Marx. Um, John Foster, John Bellamy Foster, writes a couple books about Marx and metabolism. Um, you know, some of Foster's work uh, is from the political ecology, well, most of it is from the political ecology field. Um, and what he kind of says is you can import some basic tenets of uh, Marx's work into things like the evolution of the green economy. Uh, to the ways in which um, electric vehicles have been uh, kind of manufactured and uh, sold to the public. The idea that nature needs to be preserved comes, uh, I, th I think, his argument it, from some of Marx's own thinking. Um, what we can see initially from Marx is a sort of um, dualism between um, – on the one hand, pure economic thinking, which is what he, what he term what what he's critiquing, is actually that that crude economics where it's about profits, it's about um, you know the trade of goods, the manufacturing of goods, and Marx's critique in that is that there's more that goes into capitalism than simply uh, materialistic things. So to to be able to to have a solid critique, Marx actually requires something else. So he requires something more than the dollar signs to be able to come in and say, no, there's a, another way to think of economics. So one, one kind of way that Marx does that, I think, is to bring in this metabolic process. And I'll read you another quote. This one is from volume 29, page 323. And Marx says, the real exchange of commodities that is, the social metabolic process, constitutes a transformation in which the dual nature of the commodity, commodity as use value and as exchange value, manifests itself. So I'll, I'll, I'll highlight a piece of that. The real exchange of commodities, that is, the social metabolic process. And this is, I think, getting to the heart of how Marx decides that he's going to attack uh, uh, you know, these vulgar economists is to say, you know what, the trading of goods, commodities, capitalism at its base has something social about it. And that social aspect of it follows some sort of metabolic process. Yeah, no, that's a well-chosen quote. Um, I wrote down in my notes here, um, this idea of preservation versus change. So I see preservation as somewhat of a conservative approach like you want to keep things the way they are you keep it in a almost like a little aquarium um and versus making different uses of the land say if we're talking about ecology um rather than keeping things in as pristine conditions right um and it's kind of interesting that marx i think sometimes gets misread as being um kind of conservative um in the sense that uh yes he believes in like a great deal of change through revolution um, but once you're there, you're kind of in this utopian paradise. You need to sort of cruise along at that level forever, seemingly, right? And um, what you're arguing here is that Marx should be read as like, like there's the crude economics, you know, but Marx argues for a more holistic economics. And I think that's why we can think of econ as a social science, right? 
it's not finance, it's not mathematics, it's actually a social science, right? That's why it's classified with sociology and anthropology, is because it's all these social metabolical processes that go on within economies that actually make economies go. Yeah, and, you know, I think one thing that we uh, have to be reminded of, and um, Foster reminds us of that, is that Marx um, followed Epicurean lines of thinking when he was studying philosophy in school. So, you know, Marx never actually uh, forgets these Epicurean uh, ways of living. Can you, um, can you ex explain, like, like is that um, kind of like a... A medieval philosophy is it comes out of there, or is it like religious? Like I know that there's a I think a store called Epicurus, but I don't think that's what you're referring no, to. No, no. Um, like e e Epicurean thought has been read in several ways, and I can't get into a total like the nitty gritty. Yeah, yeah, I can't Please get into yeah. a, a total re review of that. Um, but like Epicurus, um, Epicurean. <laughs> Sorry, you, you said Epicurus. Epic. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> like the name of the store or the the philosopher epicurus is that the name of the philosopher yeah <gasps> did the store plagiarize the philosopher's name i don't think it's spelled the oh, same maybe way. they should change their name to a symbol oh anyway go on please Sorry. yeah i i mean uh so epicurus kind of follows into the stoic philosophy of life oh. um you know he doesn't necessarily explicitly warn against friendships but you know overindulgence, uh, these sorts of things should be kind of avoided because um, it, you know, ultimately can lead to pain and blah, blah, blah. Um, you don't, you know, he, it, it's kind of in opposition to Aristotle in some ways that we shouldn't necessarily fear death, that death mm -hmm. is just part of something. So right away, like we can start to see some of this embedded in Marx's political thinking, right? So mm -hmm. change isn't a bad thing. Um, whereas, uh, you know, some crude e economists would say, well, no, if you have a system that works, it needs to be hardened. Uh, whereas Marx, you know, I think following through an Epicurean thought would say, well, no, you know, systems change, systems evolve. Uh, some of them may stop, which, you know, here we can kind of read into the manifesto from a different angle and say, well, um, the, you know, the backbone of Marx's whole thinking was that, um, eventually capitalism needs to be overthrown. But the way that he got there was with uh, a worldview of philosophy that allowed for things to change. Um, so this is kind of, th this is what I'm, what I'm wanting to explore with this idea of metabolism. Can I uh, just jump in before we get into the metabolism? I, I never thought to think of Marx as like a Stoic or an Epicurean. Um, Which I'm not saying he is. No, but like people come from traditions, right? And like no one person comes from one tradition is what I've ever found. Most people are an amalgamation of a number of traditions, right? Yeah. Um, and I've always read Stoicism as, as, as you say, like kind of the absence of um, these wider Aristotelian, 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 whatever, tomato, tomato. Um, Ideas, so like truth and virtue, and these these wide meta ideas, and stoicism is more like you you're being present, you're like in the moment, like you're not encumbered by a lot of thoughts. And if you read Marx that way, like that kind of just opened my mind. I'm like, oh, Marx, like maybe that's why he was using these sort of base level concepts. Like they're kind of some people get frustrated with Marx because it's like. 
he's not saying anything or he's just sort of talking around points. But what he's actually doing is trying to distill a very complex concept such as the economy and people's relationships to it down into these like easy to apply in multiple different concept or context concepts you know so like i think that's kind of an interesting way like stoicism is widely applicable right it's actually having a resurgence right now um in amongst tech circles uh techie people are getting back into stoicism so it's sort of this idea of getting down to the simple aspects and if you take it from a philosophical point of view it's like that's why we i think both like marx is that it's just sort of like these easy to apply concepts that you can kind of see all over the world right yeah and you said something kind of interesting there and it it, it's going to lead me a little bit away but not so far away from the idea of metabolism but it's this resurgence of vitalism uh so it's this kind of philosophy um that sees um, life as as being imbued or embodied or driven by a sort of uh, vitality. Um, and you can kind of think of, of these like in an RPG game, you have your, your heart meter, uh, you have your stamina meter, you have all these sorts of things. So as we carry on our daily lives, uh, these meters kind of go down or they get replenished uh, depending on mm-hmm. how we consume things. And you're and, going for like upgrades as well, right? Like how can you uh, uh, get experience points next to get up to the next level and stuff right, like this? Yes. Right, right. <laughs> and um, like vitalism, like in its very base uh, kind of structure, sees that uh, to be a productive person, to be able to contribute to one society, uh, we, we have – a, a a limited amount of energy that uh, can be expanded uh, and therefore it needs to be applied uh, quote unquote correctly. Um, so like right away we can start to it's like the vampire philosophy. <laughs> Got to replenish my life bloods. Well, like right away, like we can take pause and say, well, what does correctly mean? And then uh, we can also take pause and say, well, how much do I need to expend in these certain areas? Mm. But then I think the more, um, the more political question is, well, who decides uh, how I spend my energy or where I put it? And it's almost like um, those are like moral and value-laden questions that you're asking then politically as well, right? Oh, absolutely. And uh, some of the the most um, prolific vitalists were um, from um, the Christian church, um, being able to sacrifice or to, to devote a certain amount of energy and time towards God was it was deemed a good thing. Uh, being a hard productive laborer was also deemed uh, to be good. But then you, you get certain discourses like, well, you know, um, a teenager growing up shouldn't masturbate because he's going to lose his vital energies. Mm. Um, and then you have the, the kind of social implications of that, which becomes, you know, a masturbation scare. So now everyone's scared about um, teenagers masturbating and whatever. So, you know, like anything, these things have some sort of ancient philosophical bearing that get taken up and used for different political exercises. And then, you know, it trickles down. And how do you see vitalism like around you today, like out in the world? Like, where do you see vitalism? Well, that's something interesting. That's something that um, I'm increasingly exploring. One way in which I think it's coming back is through the concept of resilience. Um, another thing that Matt and I uh, have talked about on this podcast and something that you know I continue to, to kind of chip away at and try to figure out. Um, but the idea that 
one can rebound from uh, an event or one can possess uh, enough stamina to carry through uh, and, you know, kind of forge their path uh, when faced with adversity seems to me like it's a play on that vitalist uh, sort of con- sort of idea. And it's interesting. Um, so you connected it to our first podcast. I'm going to connect it to our second one and say that we can see um, vitalistic uh, discourses um, around uh, concussion recovery as well. Oh. Who recovers effectively and who doesn't? And why do those people not recover effectively? Is it because they're um, part of the expression pussies, um, not men, they're weak? Um, or in the case of female concussions, it's almost like they don't have enough worth to even be in the consideration and conversation about athletic concussions, right? They lack that whatever that vital essence that makes someone human enough. Yeah. Yeah. Um, The other kind of uh, way that I think uh, vitalism, and this is where I'll tie it back into uh, metabolism, is that to have that sort of vitalistic thinking uh, presupposes some sort of mechanical nature of humans. Um, Like we're a set of pulleys and levers that can be uh, used... um, for whatever purpose. So that sort of mechanistic uh, outlook on the human body um, gets taken up a little bit, I think, in the ways in which metabolic processes tend to unfold. And by a metabolic process, we can think of what happens to um, kitchen waste. So kitchen waste, uh, you know, starts um, through our, I don't know, ineffectual usage of limited resources, or I don't really feel like eating that piece of the potato, uh, gets thrown into a bin and then it's, it's process of rot sort of happens, right? And then it decomposes and it carries through has a trajectory, has a process, and then ultimately ends up in a different form, but that form still carries energy, uh, that we can tap into in a certain way. So, um, by thinking of humans as, um, possessing these vitalistic capacities, Um, really what you're saying is, well, regardless of whatever form they take, eh, it could be useful. And you see this in Marx's thinking uh, uh, in things such as uh, labor surplus uh, or things such as, you know, the army reserve. Um, So, so sorry. So for Marx is extra waste, like anything that is not used, like not in a process, is that wasted capital? Would you say? No, it's not. Wasted. That, well, I don't. I don't think maybe Mar- that's too harsh of a reading. But like, is that how he would sort of see it? Like surplus? Like, what do you mean? Well, there there's different kinds of surplus in Marx, but one of the. Oh, okay. Yeah, I didn't even know that. So. Yeah, so like one of the one of the surpluses is labor surplus, and okay. labor surplus is um, taken up in a variety of forms. But one of them is like the the extra amount of labor that is uh, taken away uh, and put into a commodity. And that's basically how Marx um, attacks the idea of profit. So he says, well, profit isn't necessarily about buying a good at a cheaper price and selling it at something higher. It's about being able to tap into surplus labor uh, to put into that. And you get your profit from the surplus labor. Um, So then they're incentivized to keep um, labor costs down and to conceivably um, invest in like labor saving technologies, putting people out of work, I suppose would be the Marxist. (laughs) No. Well, you know, yeah. So that idea of like technology 
and labor power is is uh, definitely in the forefront of Marx's mind. But it was also, you have to remember, in the forefront of all the other economists' mind. So while the other ones were saying, well, if we invest in uh, more efficient machines, we'll be able to produce more profit, Marx said, well, no, not really. What you're actually doing is you're tapping into um, labor power to be able to produce that profit. So the labor extracted to produce the more efficient machine, and then uh, the labor, the surplus labor extracted when using that efficient machine to make the final product. Um, but regardless of however you do it, there needs to be an idea um, found, like Marx needs to have a, a philosophy or a way of thinking that sees human energy, the material, natural environment that can be transformed, and then an end product. So those are like the three, in my reading, those are like, that's the triangle, the three elements that need to come together in a variety of ways for Marx to have his kind of thinking. And the way that I see it is that how he ties those things together is by saying it's a metabolic process. And John uh, Foster sees this as a metabolic rift. So capitalism introduces a rift in those three things um, by, um, through Marx, well, according to Marx, by separating the labor power from the commodity, by separating um, the worker from the sense of himself. Uh, so it's all those, you know, the, what we typically learn of Marx. Um... Yeah, absolutely. That's, um, that's fascinating because like, I think um, most of the readings I've heard from Marx have been kind of across the board. Like your readings are always, like I kind of half joking when I say Phil's going to pick something obscure out of Marx, but uh, what I'm actually meaning is that this is stuff that I totally didn't know, and I'm taking like a nice full page of notes here, all on these concepts. Um, this idea of a rift, though, do you see it, you Philip? Do you see it as a process, like the start, middle, end process, or do you see it as full of rifts and ruptures and? breaks within the process. Uh, yeah, I think it's a, a series of ruptures. Yeah. Um, and I, and I get that a little bit from Marx as well. I'm going to read you a, a quote on that. I think it, it, it's going to attack it. So this is volume 34, page 383. Um, Marx says, as a commodity, the product of capital must enter into the process of exchange of commodities thereby not only entering into the real metabolic process, but also at the same time passing through those changes of form we have presented as the metamorphosis of the commodities. So I think what, he, what, what he's telling us is that capital itself, regardless of its quantity or whatever, needs to enter into these series of disjointed processes mm. um, that, you know, we the language that we use is called the exchange of commodities, but it doesn't, it's not just the exchange of commodities. It, it changes its nature. So when I put an item that is produced uh, into an exchange relationship, that item is now um, uh, metamorphosed into something else. And, and it's interesting that you use the word there. Instead of exchange, you use uh, a trade relationship. Right, mm -hmm. and that denotes an unequal exchange. Like it doesn't always have to be a one-to-one. -one. Like I'm going to give you a bushel of lumber, and you're going to give me a bushel of wheat, or something like this. Right. right? Like that's not how exchanges actually work, and they never have. 
You yep. know, it's a an, a commodity exchange is as much a power exchange. Yeah. Um, and I think the metabolic process uh, underscores or highlights mm-hmm. that, that, that sort of thing. It's because more like the, it's more like the stomach with stomach acid mushing all things together. Like a commodity enters the system, you swallow it as like a piece of banana or something. And then it gets mushed up with all the other commodities. Similar to right. a stock exchange. Right. Um, so I think it works well in these mm-hmm. sorts of examples where it doesn't necessarily work well. And Marx kind of has to interject um, some other concepts to explain it is um, for example, when items increase uh, their uh, capital value uh, while decreasing their usefulness. And here you can think of things um, like antique uh, commodities. So like antique tables or trading cards there, there, there's no, uh, there's no, reason for a baseball card to to acquire so much value yeah. or even um, retain the value that it had in like the 90s or well, whatever right? well that's it and this is uh, you know it's but not a, all baseball cards do that right like, only I, some yeah so then how, like, how why some and why, <laughs> why why some not others yeah you know marx introduced the the, the concept of, of fetish so you have a fetish over it, right? But, ah, but that, if makes, you... that makes so much sense. I've like, uh, like I knew what like um, commodity fetishism is and stuff, but uh, that's an that's an interesting example, actually. Yeah. So you have this, like you know... upper deck. Upper deck is the one that everyone's fetishizing. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> um, and really, this to me presents a problem um, to his kind of metabolic process because there are things uh, that don't need uh, to to change um, in their form, uh, picking up on what we just said, passing through those changes of form, but they can change in um, their use value. Mm. So this is the other kind of part of what Marx interjects into the, um, so, you know, the baseball card at the beginning is something that's, I don't know, maybe uh, traded uh, for fun. But then its use value gets changed to something uh, as a collector's item. Yeah. Um, so that's how, you know, you could kind of justify it. And even and, with like, sorry, with baseball cards, like when the internet came around with like these websites that keep all the stats, right. like even the value of having a baseball card because of the statistics, yeah, that goes away, right? Yeah. You know? Uh, well, exactly. So, so I think like, <clears throat> I think metabolic processes can help explain some parts of Marx. Uh, a little bit harder to explain others. Um, I think you can find it across most, if not all of his writings somewhere. Um, I, I just kind of, I, I want to read a sni- another snippet. Um, this this time it's from Engels and you know that Engels. Uh, he's my favorite. I love, I'm a big, big Engels backer. We're yeah. A rich kid. Yeah. So, um, <laughs> so anyway, he says uh, in volume 25, page 75 of philosophy of nature, um, he says, uh, but to define life as organic metabolism is to define life as life. And for organic exchange of matter or metabolism with pla- uh, plastic, practic- plastic, which was plastically creating mm-hmm. uh, schematizations is in fact a phrase which itself needs explanation through life, explanation through the distinction between the organic and the inorganic. That is, that which lives and that which does not live. The explanation, therefore, does not get us any further. So you can see that Mar- that Engels had a, a sort of problem with the way in which metabolism is defined as being uh, 
you know, either living or non-living, organic or inorganic. It's much more than that. And I think Engels would have picked this up um, from Marx. He would have picked it up definitely from Marx's work um, around uh, the trade and the transport, well, extraction, uh, transportation, and trade of Guam as fertilizers um, in his time. He definitely would have picked it up um, through uh, Marx's work on cotton plantations or his journalistic work around uh, the use of dead wood and uh, mm. peasants collecting dead wood, their need for it, etc. Um, and even those like metaphors that you just gave there, the cotton, the dead wood, that was all in the very first quote that you that you read, right? Exactly. Yeah, no, that's key. And that's um, kind of what uh, academics do, whether they're philosophers like uh, Marx or um, people with, you know, experience out in the world, um, we all kind of draw off our own individual lived experiences and work it into our philosophical and theoretical discussions. So, like, kind of put you on the spot here, Phil, but um, either what are some modern examples of this um, economic uh, or metabolic process, rather, um, and, or, or, and, um, how can we use Marx to think through some sort of political issues of the day? Um, okay. I'm going to preface uh, your, your question with uh, one final uh, quote from Marx and um, you'll see where I'm, where I'm going with it right away. So this comes from volume 29, page 292. Marx says the exchange of commodities is the process in which the social metabolism, in other words, the exchange of particular products of private individuals simultaneously gives rise to the definite social relations of production into which individuals enter into the course of this metabolism. As they develop, the interrelations of commodities crystallize into distinct aspects of the universal equivalent, and thus the exchange process becomes at the same time the process of formation of money. This process as a whole, which comprises several processes, constitutes circulation. The modern example that I have that replicates, I think, what Marx is talking about here are things like Bitcoin. So when you have the circulation of a commodity, such as money, uh, that's been done for so long, the rapid introduction of a new form, unless you change the social metabolism in it, according uh, following Marx, really all you're doing is developing uh, not a new sort of set uh, of relationships. You're just rebu rebuilding them. So unless something like Bitcoin uh, or similar products can fundamentally change the social relationships and the social practices around the exchange of that commodity, they're, they're not introducing a new thing. Mm. And it's almost like if all the Bitcoins get bought up by the rich and powerful, then it's just uh, another currency that's controlled by the rich and powerful, like well, all the other ones, right? Well, well, that's just it. Mm -hmm. So, like, Bitcoin... But the promise, sorry, the promise of Bitcoin, though, was as it would be a great leveler, right? That it would give people access to a moneyed economy that wouldn't otherwise have access, whether they're individuals who can't have a bank account or they're... Um, just so marginalized in the third world that uh, they haven't seen a bank yeah, for miles, right? Like it's, it was supposed to be this sort of leveler, but it seems like 
is just used to launder money and bet on uh, gambling in America. Well, this is just it. So at the beginning, it was something distinct from, let's just call it the dollar, yeah, right? Sure. Um, but as Mark says, as they develop the interrelations of commodities, so the interrelations between this new dollar and the old dollar, or the traditional dollar, uh, can crystallize into distinct aspects of the universal equivalent. So even though we have a Bitcoin and the dollar, they're both universally equivalent in some aspects. So regardless of whatever else you're trying to trade, you're going to trade against it. So now instead of trading against the dollar, you're trading against Bitcoin. Fundamentally, it hasn't changed the social relationships of exchange or of production. Yeah, Fundamentally, absolutely. it hasn't replaced the amount of surplus labor that has gone in to creating commodities uh, in the first place. So what what we see is that the 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 metabolic process, the the creation of something new out of something old, doesn't actually um, pan out in in the case of Bitcoin. Hmm. No, that's uh, that's fascinating. I I never. I'm kind of at a loss, man. I don't uh, really know what to add to that. Um, do you have any extra examples? Maybe another quote or a key point that you kind of forgot to to raise that you want to throw in there. Um. I mean, uh, my my work. Anything, uh, man, it's your own show. Yeah, my, no, but like my 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 work with Marx is is like a, kind of like a metaphor for actually how I practice uh, academics. It's kind of one foot in, one foot out. Like I I I think Marx gives us a lot of good lessons, but at the same time, I don't think those lessons are the ones that are often repeated. Um, like when I pick up Marx and I read, um, you know, Capital. Uh, volume one and two, when I read the Grandirise, I, I don't read the marks that everyone else reads. For for some reason... How do you mean, sorry? For, like, for some reason, those passages where Marx says that he wants to overthrow capitalism or it will inevitably do that and workers unite and all this sort of stuff, I don't see that as being like the key elements in Marx's philosophy yeah, or Marx's no, me, writing. Me too. Yeah. I, I see it almost as if like throwaways stuff that he had to have to be mm -hmm. able to continue writing or continue researching. Um, and or it's just, or do you think it just doesn't resonate with you? Because those are aspects of Marx. Like when you see some Bolshevik on a university campus, well, handing out flyers telling you that you need to overthrow the capitalistic system. Um, you kind of like, you take the flyer, but you walk away and be like, Oh man, like, I don't know if that's where you should be directing your energies. So, like, is it just maybe, like, bygone era? Yeah, and I think it's... Activism takes a different I, form I, now? I don't know. I think there's a resurgence of Marx right now, and it's not... Be, and Marx isn't being read through the lens of um, Soviet guides. So, like, yeah. we're not reading Marx through the lens of the Cold War. We're no longer reading Marx uh, with the companion guides, um that interpreted base superstructure mm -hmm. in a totally weird way, yeah, like right? Yeah, Levi-Strauss-ian structuralism yeah, or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, so I think we can go back uh, now uh, and really pick Marx apart to find those little threads mm -hmm. that either follow through or sometimes don't um, to really uncover how we can put Marx to work. And it, it is interesting, just on a little minutia note there, but um, like when we talk about um, process change um exchange even in some ways relationships in Marx, like when you're teasing out those sorts of concepts, that 
was considered quite radical in like the 70s and 80s. Like that was what was considered like sort of radical like Marxism mm -hmm. in academic circles. Um, and what Phil says about the base superstructure, that structuralist approach, that was sort of like the normal way because that's how the Soviets practiced Marxism mm -hmm. for that example. It was very regimented, top-down, structured society, you know, and that's how we thought Marxism should be read. So every time... Marx has a resurgence, which is like once every decade, it seems yeah, like, seems, ever since yeah. he kicked it, even when he was alive, maybe. But uh, um, the reading is always a little bit different. And the reading that you get of Marx responds to the times and also projections that people are making into the future. Yeah, I think one scenario is that, um, you know, the undergrads right now, who pick up Marx, we'll be able to pick up Marx with a different ecological perspective. We'll be able to see Marx at a time when we have the capabilities, for example, to have electric cars, but yet uh, there's a continual want or focus um, on coal energy. And, you know, the only one of the ways that you can explain this uh, divergence of views, this need to preserve uh, the ecology uh, crossed with this, you know, I'm going to call it like a hideous uh, idea that we can explore and extract as much as we want because we're, we're human. One of the ways that you can explore that is with uh, the metabolic rift. So thank you, John Bellamy Foster for that. It's a, it's a great concept. I think it can continue to be applied. Um, I don't think Marx will be off of, uh, course packs or course reviews anytime soon. Mm -hmm. um, so what I, you know, what I hope to do in my work is to to bridge in the other concept of resilience and say, well, look, resilience actually relies on this concept of metabolism. And here it is in the work of Marx. Um, you know, I'm also exploring the concepts in the, in the work of um, George Simmel, uh, as well as Walter Benjamin uh, and some other neo Marxian sort of thinkers. And then, <clears throat> those names I uh, haven't heard for a while, but those are some of, the, some of the heavy hitters that Phil has been engaging with for a while. So thanks, Phil. You gave us a lot to chew on there. Um, it was really fascinating. Um, and we would love to hear from the rest of you. So why don't you tell the folks how they can get a hold of us? Yeah, you can reach us uh, by email at semi-intellectual at gmail.com. That's all one word. You can find us on Twitter at the underscore S-I-M underscore P-O-D. That's the SimPod at Twitter. And you can find this podcast on the Podbean network on, at thesim.podbean.com. Uh, there you also find show notes, uh, links to anything we've talked about uh, today, anything I've uh, discussed. Um, we'd love to hear from you. Love to hear your comments. If I got something wrong, which you know what I probably did, uh, thinking back about it, I don't. I think I said Aristotle when I meant Epicurean. But anyway, <laughs> uh, email us. Let me know. Um, I'll be humbled uh, to hear. But keep it classy. Keep it classy. Hey, thanks for staying with us. Uh, we're here with some recommendations. Matt, uh, do you have anything for us? 
Yeah, this week, um, a really quick one. Um, it's a, another podcast that uh, I've been listening to for a couple of years now. He has two out. Um, it's by Dan Carlin. Uh, the one I wanted to recommend was uh, Dan Carlin's Hardcore History. And it's like hours long each episode um, where he takes these wide sweeping uh, reviews of some topic in history. So, for example, he had a, um, like a three-parter on the Persian Empire. Uh, another one that I really liked is uh, a five-part series on the Mongol Empire. Wow. Um, and one just standalone episode that I would recommend, it's called Prophets of Doom, and it's about the Protestant Reformation and this sort of breakaway sect of Protestantism that, like, holed up in this city, and it got sieged, and they started getting crazy, and cannibalism, and a lot of sex. It's uh, it's really entertaining. Wow, that sounds great. Yeah, absolutely. Do you have anything for uh, for... For us, Phil? I do. Uh, a bit different. You are castaways on a deserted island. Your situation is very difficult. But look there. Ooh, there is where? one of your shipmates, beautiful <gasps> Jenny, trapped on a lonely rock in the middle of the ocean. You need to build a raft and rescue her. And then you better hurry and build a boat to escape from the island. A hurricane is approaching fast. Uh... My recommendation is actually a board game. Uh, it, so Robinson Crusoe Adventures on the Cursed Island. Uh, my wife and I have been playing it. I've been wanting this game for probably a year. And uh, oh. finally, my local game store had it in stock. So we snatched it up uh, maybe about a month ago. We've played uh, Campaign 1 through three and that was an extract of campaign three uh so far it is a hard game it is a very fun game it, it you know it follows loosely around uh the the book robinson crusoe um so you got to build stuff so you have to manage resources you have to eat you have to fight um all the while you're trying to accomplish uh the campaign goals so it's kind of like rpg mm. kind of um so what about Friday? He's my favorite character in Robinson Crusoe. So I gotta know what happens with Friday. Is he a big character in this uh, game? Friday. So if you play a two-person game, uh, Friday is your companion. He he follows you along. He's there now. Interestingly, Friday doesn't need to eat at the end of the day. He doesn't need shelter. Uh, he doesn't take, uh, like, uh, hits to the health the same way. Well, it's uh, almost like a non-person, just like the book. You know, Friday fucking has a <laughs> fort in the forest and he comes and does your shit. Like, is it a fort or is it a hut? Well, maybe, I don't know. Is it a shanty? <laughs> it, could, it could be a hole in a rock. I don't know. But Friday, he's a mean bastard. Like he'll... Oh, really? Oh, yeah. Like, uh, he doesn't, like, he doesn't have any special powers. Uh, so each person kind of plays a role, a carpenter, um, or an explorer, that sort of thing. He, he doesn't have any special powers, but, um, like you, you just bring him along. And so like, <laughs> let's say like you need to fight this beast, you just push him in front of it. If the beast like, you know, attacks Friday gets hurt. Yeah. It's just like, here, like he does your grunt work. Like you can send him <laughs> to go clean your camp. Wow. So sort of like your little slave or... Uh, oh. Or maybe wait, wait. Sorry, that's politically incorrect. Your uh, helper. He, he he's your he, helper. He's he's a he's a helper. Um, <laughs> so anyway, um, yeah, uh, Robinson Crusoe, um, a game by Inachi uh, Trejewick. So I can't pronounce that. That that was horrible. <laughs> I, I think it's published by Portal. It's a great game. Um, like the instruction manual is thirty eight or thirty nine pages long alone. It it, it it takes a while to learn, but there's lots of resources online. 
to know how to to play it. Um, and they've recently added uh, a seventh uh, scenario, which is the dreadful adventure of King Kong Island, um, which is just fantastic. And uh, you can download a bunch of user-generated or player-generated uh, scenarios as kind of expansions. Um, so, like, you know, the repi- cost, replayability, uh, level of difficulty, just overall, it's a great board game. Cool. Sounds good, man. All right. Well, thank thank you everyone for being with us. And, you know, we'll continue to say it, but we do really thank you uh, for joining our conversations. Um, without you, uh, we couldn't be able to do this podcast. So we look forward to hearing your comments that you can email us. Um, you can tweet us uh, your uh, your your questions Maybe or board game recommendations. We, I'd love to hear some board game recommendations. Yeah, what what it's are you guys really playing? My jam, but it's more of Phil's thing, and he uh, he always likes new board games. Like I didn't know that you can eagerly anticipate a board game coming out, and oh, uh, yeah. apparently I learned something new today. Absolutely. So you can reach us at uh, semi intellectual, all one word, semi intellectual at gmail dot com. You can tweet at us at the underscore sim underscore pod that's the simpod on twitter and you can reach this podcast on the podbean network at the sim dot podbean dot com